If you or someone you know has been the victim of sexual violence, please reach out and contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. They have a multitude of resources and hope for a better tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of Real Crime NYC with Chris, Bill, and Pat. In this week's episode, we bring you the case of a serial rapist and killer responsible for the deaths of at least two women and one victim who narrowly escaped his clutches and lived to tell the tale. This case brings us to seedy hotels and abandoned buildings in Manhattan's Hell's Kitchen and Brooklyn's Williamsburg neighborhoods. It involves random hookups, drug abuse, and sexual fetishes. It's the story of a true predator, enabled by poor choices and reckless behavior. Before we get into it, please like and follow Real Crime NYC now. Okay, guys, what do you got? Yeah, Pat, on Tuesday, September 8, 2015, a 43-year-old female named Antoinette was found dead inside the Manhattan Broadway Hotel on West 38th Street in New York City. She was found lying face down and naked on the bed inside of room 403. When detectives arrived, they noticed there was no signs of visible trauma to the body, but they did notice that her hair, the bed sheets, and towels were all soaking wet. That's what we got. But just picture it. Midtown South, Times Square area, the busiest area in the world. People coming in through Penn Station, people coming in through the Port Authority. You have the Lincoln Tunnel there. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uniform Patrol respond to a hotel on 38th Street and 8th Avenue, which that corridor on 8th Avenue is known for. So you'll have some sketchy characters along there, men that prey upon women that get off the buses. These women don't know the area. They don't know who to trust. These men see them and they approach them. They either try to sell them drugs or they try to get them to confide in them or to trust them. Now you have four o'clock in the afternoon, you have Uniform Patrol going to a hotel on 38th and 8th. They get up there. The desk clerk says that there's a naked woman that's wet in the bed. So right away, I think patrol is thinking either prostitution, either a drug overdose. It's a short-term stay in a hotel that's in a seedy neighborhood, and they call for detectives. They get some background information on the woman that's found there. She's not a prostitute. They're looking to see, is there any drug paraphernalia? Because now they're looking to see, is there a, a drug angle here? Is it a drug overdose? She's and not it, a kid either. She's like 43 years old, right? A 43-year-old woman from the Bronx. No uh, record. She, no record. She has three kids. So they're looking at all the different angles. And right now, what they do is the detectives will now look at video, but they realize not a prostitute, short-term stay. Maybe he just met her. Maybe they know each other. They see the video, two people entering. You have a woman and a man entering the hotel. You only have the man exiting the hotel. That's what you have right now. So now they're going to wait for the MLI to get there. And the MLI will examine the body on scene. And there's no obvious signs of trauma to the body. So they really do not know what they have right now. But there's one thing that's kind of mysterious to them. The body is soaking wet. The bed is soaking wet. The rug is wet. Seems like there's a lot of water being thrown around in this room. And the only reason I could think of right off the bat without knowing anything else is that maybe it was an attempt to destroy some evidence. But like I said, there's no trauma to the body. We don't know what we have here. Or a drug overdose. If there's a lot of water, a lot of times people will see that you know somebody goes unconscious. They'll try to throw them in the shower or to try to throw them in the tub, trying to wake them up. So that's going through their mind as well. So I agree with you, but there's also that other thinking of, could it be a drug overdose gone bad? 
Absolutely. The desk clerk tells responding units that she checks in with a male and the male leaves at some point without checking out. So there's well, other there's well, other information available as well. Well, what actually happens is uh, the desk clerk tells the maid that's going up to clean the room. And you could tell this is not your uh, Ritz Carlton here. The desk clerk is telling the maid to go collect additional money. They haven't exited the room. Their time is up. I think it was 12 o'clock. And the maid knocks on the door and says, hey, they tell me you got to pay more money if you want to stay. You're, you overstayed. He actually hands $40 out of the door without opening the door. Just a hand comes out with $40. The maid gives him $10 change. And then she delivers that to the desk clerk, who is supposedly going to allow them to stay till 4 p.m. He right, doesn't go up there and discover the body until after 4 p.m. So while all this is going on, Brooklyn detectives become aware of this homicide in a Manhattan hotel. Detectives talk to each other and detective bosses talk to each other. We have an operations unit which collects all the cases. So there's like a central information hub going on here. And Brooklyn gives a call to Manhattan and says, hey, wait a minute. In July, we had a woman found dead face down on a bed in a hotel in the 9-0 precinct. She was soaking wet also. Now, we have some leads on this case, and we think we even know who was with her, but we're still waiting for the ME to determine that it was a homicide. However, there is some indication of injury to her neck, and that's what puts these two cases together. Right. In the Brooklyn case, when detectives see that there's some similarities, detectives in Brooklyn have a 34-year-old female, and she's got four kids, and she's going through a tough time in her life. What detectives in Brooklyn tell the Manhattan detectives is, this woman was trying to straighten out her life. She's got four kids. She works in a local restaurant. She's a photographer. She's with her friend, and this man walks by and strikes up a conversation with her. The friend tells her, don't go with him. And he's like a ladies' man. He's trying to convince her, you know, you'll have a good time. Come hang out with me. And she walks off with the man. Very similar to the Manhattan incident where... This woman met this man. Now, we, we find video of the victim in Manhattan when she meets this man. Same well, thing. He backtracks, strikes up a conversation with her, and then she leaves with him. Well, that friend becomes a key witness and helps in solving this case because when detectives talk to her, she tells them, I don't know the guy's government name, but I know his street name. I've partied with him before. His street name is Ice Cream. And so now they have a little something to look at. But they're also working up that crime scene in Brooklyn. The crime scene unit is there. They're doing what they do. And they come up with a palm print off a phone handset in that hotel room in Brooklyn. What they also notice is when they're looking at the video of both uh, hotels, the man that's with the two different women in each of the, the incidents is wearing a unique belt. The belt almost looks like it's two handcuffs coming together in the front, which is unusual. You, you don't really see that. They realize we have the same person in Brooklyn and in Manhattan entering a location, a hotel, and that man is exiting the location and the woman in both incidents are not. All right. So, so when I say he's a true predator, he's very opportunistic. He thinks of himself as a ladies' man, but these are the most unlucky ladies ever. They're ending up dead. And he's not just charged with these homicides. He's also a suspect in several rapes. One of them happened to be in the Gramercy Park area of Manhattan, where a woman that was intoxicated was assaulted and raped. And 
he was a suspect in that rape also. So think about it. Right now we're in Manhattan, several different neighborhoods. We're in Brooklyn in several different neighborhoods. The parochial interests of each detective unit here can't be paramount. We have to work for the greater good. So this is one of those cases where the detective bosses have to get together and make sure that this goes smoothly and there's teamwork. So you have the Midtown South Detective Squad. You have the Manhattan South Homicide Squad. You have the Nino Detective Squad. You have the Brooklyn North Homicide Squad. You have Special Victims Division Detectives in Brooklyn. You have Special Victims Detectives in Manhattan. And based on that palm print, we now have the Fugitive Enforcement Division involved plus the ME's office. So all of these different entities have to work in a coordinated manner. You don't want them all working unilaterally. You want someone coordinating this and saying what gets done, who it gets done by, and in what order it gets done. And that's the role of the boss. And I think, Bill, you and I know, especially in this case, it took a lot of coordination because all of these detectives want nothing but to solve this case. But they're all very competitive, too. They're all type A personalities. So what you have to do is bring them all together and get the case done for the greater good so that we can get them on both cases in both boroughs. No, exactly. And what you'll do in a case like this is, especially when you have two separate rapes and you have two potential murders, you go with the strongest case. So now you're established probable cause on a strongest case and have that DA run with the strongest case. And then you'll continue to work up the other cases. So in in this situation, the two rapes were, I don't want to say the weaker cases, but it was much more difficult to establish probable cause. So the incident that you described, right, right the inc incident that you described, the woman was intoxicated, she's in a cab, and she ends up not knowing where she is, and she ends up uh, finding herself- on, on the street being right. raped. She finds herself being raped. But then in the other incident- Well, wait a minute. To finish that thought, she could not ID the perpetrator- but the DNA that was recovered comes back to our suspect. Well, so you have some DNA, but you don't have an ID. And she's really not even, she's blacking in and out. She's really not even sure what happened, how it happened. Right. Not, and, not the strongest case. And those are the most difficult cases. I mean, the Manhattan DA's office has a special victims unit that deals with this. The NYPD has a special victims unit that deals with this. And they work together. Very difficult cases to establish probable cause and also beyond a reasonable doubt to take it to trial and to get a jury unanimously to say this woman was in fact raped. With the other rape, the woman's outside of a Starbucks in Union Square in Manhattan. And this guy does what he does. He walks past her, comes back, strikes up a conversation, and then they get in a cab together and they go back to Brooklyn. He forces her to do drugs. She believes that it was heroin that he forced her to do. And then the next thing you know is he's raping her. He's well, he takes her to an abandoned building also. So what I found a, a little odd is that this woman goes from Union Square in Manhattan all the way to Brownsville, Brooklyn, ends up in an abandoned building being forced to do drugs. Talk about poor choices and reckless behavior. Yeah, I, don't blame the vic I don't want to blame the victim here, but this is insanity. You can't blame the victim because... You have a woman in Manhattan striking up a conversation with a man. Nobody expects the violence that's here. Nobody expects to be raped. You're striking up a conversation. That's what you do. You, you talk to people. And I think this woman, that's exactly what she did. She gets in a cab with him. 
goes back to Brooklyn, and I think she finds herself in a really bad situation. But never yeah. expecting this man to violently rape her. And the only reason why she's alive is because he fell asleep and she escaped. Because I'll tell you, that rape happened in between the Brooklyn murder and the Manhattan murder. Brooklyn murder was in July. This rape happens in August. And the Manhattan murder happens in September. He possibly was looking to do it again, but he fell asleep. Absolutely. I, I'm, I think this was exactly along the same lines. And she would have ended up dead had he not fell asleep. And I believe she tells us something very significant, too. He wets her down. He puts her in the shower. And when she escapes, her clothes are wet. Right. And she observes him. And she no also notices that he has two tattoos, one on each forearm, one of a rose. The other one has hands and a prayer. That's significant. Now we have a person who he's leaving behind his DNA. He has tattoos on him. This rape here, I think it gives prosecutors and also detectives a better chance of establishing probable cause and a better chance of going forward with the prosecution. Yeah, so we mentioned a couple of different units here. Special Victims Division. In my opinion, those are some of the most complex criminal investigations you're ever going to have. And I put them on the same level as a homicide squad. They have some of the most complex cases to solve and prosecutions that you're ever going to come across as a detective. And a lot of people don't know that. The other unit we mentioned briefly was the Fugitive Enforcement Division, what most people would refer to as the Warrant Squad. And most people probably don't know how it works, but in the NYPD, you have a case it's solved by the local detective squad or a specialty squad. They identify their suspect, you know, a legit identification. So they know who their suspect is. They have probable cause. They do an initial attempt to apprehend that suspect. And then they send the case to the Fugitive Enforcement Division, which has a warrant squad in each borough. They have a violent felony offender squad. And then they have the regional fugitive task force. So it's not the, the local detective squad months later that are probably hunting for this individual. It's actually the Fugitive Enforcement Division. And an important part of that is the Regional Fugitive Task Force, where our NYPD detectives are deputized as United States Marshals. So they have jurisdiction throughout the United States. They don't have to stop at the state line. They'll hunt you down no matter where you are. I mean, I always said this, the Fugitive Enforcement Division of the NYPD is the most productive unit in the detective bureau. They literally bring in hundreds of criminals every single week. So right now we have these tattoos. We have DNA from the back of one of our victims' necks linking up to clothing on another victim. And we have that DNA linking up to our suspect, in addition to a palm print from the Brooklyn murder linking up to our suspect. And our suspect is a 36-year-old from Brooklyn. And in 20 years, he has 28 arrests. A lot of drug arrests. And we know that he's a gang member. He's a violent guy. And the people that we're speaking to call him a ladies' man. That all fits with what we're seeing right here. It all fits with the conduct, the behavior that we're seeing leading up to these deaths and also these rapes. So we feel we have the right guy. 
detectives will present it to the district attorneys. Now, again, you're dealing with district attorneys in Brooklyn, you're dealing with district attorneys in Manhattan, and you're also dealing with district attorneys within those boroughs. You have the Homicide Bureau, and you also have the Special Victims Bureau. And all agree, let's go forward with arresting them for these murders. Yeah, Bill, another key evidence here is in the 9-0 precinct homicide, um, when he's inside the room, he leaves his palm print on the handset to the telephone. That was vital in identifying him, which ultimately led to his arrest. And the DNA hits linked the 7-3 rape to the 13 precinct homicide. Right. So what happens is we now know who we're looking for, right? And we know that this guy is super dangerous because he's committing crimes over and over again while we're investigating one. He's still out there committing crimes. So now it's vital that we put our hands on this guy and bring him in now that we think we have probable cause. How does he get apprehended? So you were mentioning before the warrant squads, we also have a unit called Taru. They specialize on technical, like cellular phone triangulation. So they'll work hand in hand with the warrant unit to apprehend this person. And that's exactly what they did here. They get together, they triangulate his location to a place in Brooklyn. They go into the apartment building and what he does is he actually jumps out the window. The perp jumps out the window over a fence and he escapes. So now Warrants and Taru and the local detective squads and the homicide squads, they're all working together. Where could he go? What he ended up doing was he ended up going to a hospital because he broke his foot. They track him to Manhattan and there's a hospital very close to a woman that knows him. And they track him to the 16th floor of this building. It's on 2nd Avenue in the Kips Bay uh, section of uh, Manhattan. They go in there and they apprehend him. Somehow the media gets hold of this guy that's, that's out there wanted for murdering two women, raping two women. And he gives a statement to, uh, you know, spontaneous statement to detectives and also to the media. So it's kind of interesting here how the apprehension actually happened. So, Bill, when you referred to they triangulated on him in Brooklyn, what they did was they pinged his phone. They triangulated on his phone signal. And that's how they ended up going to Brooklyn. But like you said, he escaped, but he did break his foot when he escaped. He got away that day. When the detectives show up in Manhattan in Kipps Bay, they go to the building where they knew he had an acquaintance. And they were probably going to not only check for him, but to talk to that acquaintance and see, when is the last time you saw him? Do you know where he would be? And as they're coming out of the elevator, boom, there's our perpetrator on crutches standing there right in front of them. And that's when he makes these spontaneous utterances, well, I broke my foot when I was trying to get away from you guys the other day in Brooklyn. So that's pretty interesting, but it's not uncommon. You know, you go in there for one thing and boom, you hit your bingo right there. They get off the elevator, there's their perpetrator standing there right in front of them. But the one thing he doesn't do is say, I want a lawyer. So what that allows us as detectives, as investigators, is an opportunity here. Detectives bring him back to Midtown South Detective Squad. There's an opportunity here to question him. The question about all four incidents and possibly more. Maybe maybe there's more incidents that he's either raped woman or he's murdered woman. Oh, if you ask me my opinion, I would without a doubt say there are multiple other incidences that we just don't know about that weren't reported. I agree. And that's what we want to find out. So now we have him in the detective squad and it's important to make sure that this guy gets prosecuted. So what you want to do is, Bill, you hit on it before. You want to put your best foot forward. You want to have your best case forward. 
but you don't want to not do the other cases because a jury, you never know what a jury is going to do. So you want him prosecuted on as many of these cases as you possibly can. You want to make sure it's done in such a way that you get your conviction, but you don't sacrifice any of the other cases. So in an effort to do that, what do we do? We put the detectives together, detectives from Brooklyn, detectives from Manhattan, go at them, but have a plan. You're not just doing this willy-nilly. But remember, he's talkative. They bring him in. He wants to talk. They're chomping, oh, at, him, the to, they, they're chomping at the bit to get him in that room, to put the recording on, right? Because the interrogation rooms are all recorded. Yep. And he wants to talk. He's saying, yeah, we had some uh, freaky sex. Uh, I, I get freaky. And he's putting himself uh, in both locations. So he's let me stop you right there, Bill, and solve the mystery for our listeners. You said that he was talking about having freaky sex. He liked to urinate on these women, and he liked to have them urinate on him. And that, we believe, is the explanation for all the water. He made them shower. He forced them to shower and get completely wet after they had been urinated on. And, and that's, that's where connected. the water came from. And that's what connected these two homicides together. Well, and one almost homicide. Right. That other, that other woman is very lucky. That happens in the middle of these two. She's very lucky he fell asleep and she was able to get away. But she comes oh. back with critical information. I mean, she's she's, she's the only has... lucky lady involved in this whole thing because she survived. Exactly. And and she sees the tattoos on his arms. Listen, any defense attorney can make up excuses for why DNA was deposited in certain areas. Previous to this, day or, before. it happened a day before. Exactly, Chris. And on this situation, you have an eyewitness that survived that could tell exactly what happened. He forced her to have drugs. Distinctive belt, tattoos, belt, that belt. not only in person, but on the videos of him entering and exiting, you could see some of his tattoos. In both uh, situations, he ex it was a short-term stay in a hotel. He extended the stays. So everything is matching up here. He's in the squad. He's in the box, putting himself in both locations. I mean, this is great that we're going to get this guy off the streets and he's not going to be able to do this again. There's an abundance of evidence here, and he knows it. And at some point, he just gives up and just gets it off his conscience. What you said, Chris, is true to an extent, because while he's in that box in the Midtown South squad, he's very talkative. And the DA is there to make sure, you know, there's nothing coercive going on and to make sure that she gets what she needs from the case. But at some point when he's being specifically questions about things, he clams up. He says he wants a lawyer at that point. But he gave so, enough. To put oh, him. absolutely. Absolutely. But there was a point where he clammed up. So what happens is the Manhattan District Attorney's Office authorizes the arrest for the Manhattan homicide. When it comes to the Brooklyn homicide, the Brooklyn DA says, let Manhattan do what they have to do today with him. And we will arrest him in the next couple of days on a complaint, which means there's just a, an accusatory instrument filed saying he's wanted for murder, and they arrest him on that. Now we have these outstanding rapes that we have to deal with. How does that go? The Special Victims Division of both the Manhattan DA's office, the Brooklyn DA's office, and also the NYPD working together to establish probable cause to be able to present it to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. The murders here, they take priority because you know, you're going to get 25 to life on, on a murder. You also have some identifications here. The rape victim... You have the desk clerk, the maid from the hotel in Manhattan only saw a black hand come out of the door with the cash in it, but the desk clerk saw him enter and leave. 
So the desk clerk was actually able to identify him as the person entering that room before the homicide and leaving the room after the homicide. There's an abundance of, of evidence here. A well-coordinated effort that might look scattershot, but was coordinated between two different boroughs, a lot of different units, and came to a successful conclusion because it was managed well. Most times I say the best thing a boss can do in the detective bureau is get out of the detective's way and let them do what they do. But in this case, that was not the deal. This required some real high-level coordination, and I think they pulled it off in this case. Well, not only the investigative coordination, just dealing with the public, the media. The NYPD did release information to the media, did provide them with enough information so that these women in the area are cautious, so that if they do see somebody acting like that or behaving like that, they're very cautious not to get in a cab with him, not to go back to a hotel with him, because this is what's going on right now. Until we could apprehend him, just be on alert. Well, sounds like it's time to wrap this one up. And that's that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Real Crime NYC, sponsored by AMC Media. Hit subscribe and follow us for free access to our most up-to-date episodes. You can find Real Crime NYC on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.